Hi, I'm Adam. And I'm Rose. And welcome to the Jewish Disability Services, Together We Make an Impact podcast. On this episode of JDS, Together We Make an Impact, we are honored to be speaking with Dr. Sanford D. Greenberg, who at the age of 19, while studying at Columbia University in 1961, became blind when misdiagnosed glaucoma claimed his vision, and so he feared his future. Through civic-minded entrepreneurial efforts and a passion for helping others, Sandy overcame staggering adversity to become a singular successful business leader and philanthropist. Having obtained degrees from both Columbia and Harvard, noted as a successful inventor, been a White House fellow, and most recently now an author with his published memoir, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Before we jump into this conversation, I just wanted to share a few facts about blindness in America. Approximately 12 million Americans are affected by a visual disability, and no less than 3.2% of the world's population, or 253 million people in the world, have visual impairments. More than 80% of visual impairments are preventable or curable. The WHO considers that 2.2 billion people suffer from a vision disorder worldwide, and that by 2050, that figure is expected to double. Sandy. Let's jump right in. In your 2020 memoir, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, you shared that you lost your ability to see while still in a Detroit hospital bed, and that you made an oath to yourself and God that no one should have to suffer and go blind. I think that's quite a bold statement to make, especially for a 19-year-old college student. Um, But could you share with our listeners some pivotal moments along your journey um, that you've taken on this personal mission of yours to end blindness? Certainly. You were very kind to say it was a bold statement. It was insanity because I had no idea. It was simply an instinct because I began to see the dimensions of blindness and it surely didn't seem uh, that a lot of people should be suffering from it. So I did make the promise to God and I've tried to keep it best I can. Shortly after I left the hospital and returned home to Buffalo, I uh, was despairing of my future because after all, I was a dropout and I had no money, no eyes, no future. And uh, trying to come back to life was a bit of a challenge, although I had wonderful, wonderful people who helped me, including my wife and my college roommates. But the science simply wasn't there to be taken seriously in terms of the vision sciences. It took decades for progress to be made so that Uh, scientists could say, yes, now it's at a point where we could stretch and we're making progress. And that wasn't really until this century. And so in 2012, Sue and I, my wife and I decided to uh, begin a, a, a program to communicate to anyone who would care to listen, 
that uh, we are engaging in an effort to end blindness by 2020. And what surprised both of us, because it, it's, uh, it's an insane effort to begin with, we created a scientific advisory board and a governing council among the most distinguished scientists and civic leaders in this country. Uh, on the scientific side, we had uh, three people who had won Nobel Prizes, the others, many other prizes that uh, indicated that these were the best in their fields. And so we began uh, talking to as many people in the vision sciences as we could. Uh, I had made a commitment, as did Sue, that uh, we would not be judging the people who should be rewarded for their efforts. So we left it so that the scientific advisory board can do the searching and selection. And then the names were passed to the governing council and they ratified what had been done. So we pro provided these prizes to 13 extraordinary scientists from all over the world. Subsequent to that, Sue and I were approached by the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute, and they suggested that together with them, we should start a Sanford and Susan Greenberg Center to end blindness, which is today the only facility in the world dedicated to that one goal. We decided at the outset that we would begin by raising $100 million, which was a near impossible task. Today, the task is virtually complete. And what what we do with the funds are we provide them to young scientists. The way the current scientific community uh, runs is that scientists, usually at the age of 44, receive R01 grants from the National Institutes of Health. And that sets them up for many years to come. But the junior scientists, the younger people who are bursting with new ideas, don't have enough funds to pursue their research. So all of our funds will be given to the young scientists who we all deem to be the best and are also dedicated to ultimately ending wellness. That's amazing. 
I mean, you called it insane, but I think it really is bold and powerful to make such a large goal and work so diligently towards it. What would you say are the projects or work that has come out of the Greenberg Prize that you are most excited about at this time? That's a tough question because there are so many extraordinary people. I would land on a woman named Jean Bennett, who is a scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. She, her name is Jean Bennett, and she's in the field of gene therapy. She applied to the Food and Drug Administration several years ago to get approval to insert a gene into the human body which had never been done before. And she was granted permission to do that. She dealt with young blind children who had contracted or inherited a disease called Labor's congenital amaurosis, which is a cousin of retinitis pigmentosa. And she created these new healthy genes in her laboratory at the University of Pennsylvania and then inserted the healthy genes into the retina where the defective gene exists. And within a few days, they could see again. Wow. That's what I said. That is what I mean when I say, and blindness. There are softer words people use, cure blindness, prevent blindness, etc. No, this is a scourge that has existed with uh, our fellow human beings for about six million years. And in the course of the blindness of many of these people we've lost, Winston Churchill's and Mother Teresa's and Albert Einstein's, and it's, uh, it's just sad. And we're facing a future where if we don't do something, we'll have the same problem going forward for the yet unborn children. So, while I am aware that there has been a great deal of progress made in the world of technology, speech to text, text to speech, Alexa, streams, milestones, a whole variety of things that are Attack helpful. Milestones, the Rolling Stones album. <laughs> she heard you. I was waiting to see who would pick that up. <laughs> I want to play some. Uh, uh, so uh, the um, the point of all of these developments is to enhance the quality of life for people who are visually impaired. 
And I personally believe that is significant contribution. However, the facts remain 70%, 70% of Americans born blind are unemployed. There is no other group in the country that has a statistic like that. You can mm -hmm. get a job because there, oh, there are multiple reasons, but the fact is people won't hire blind people for any jobs that are significant. Therefore, therefore, the only conclusion you can come to after all of that is you must eradicate the scourge. Simple. I hear you. And as an occupational therapist, I think it is really important that whenever we have any disability that we do approach it from both angles, you know, and what's so amazing about what you're doing is most people are not in a position to attack the biological person factors related to blindness that you are. And I think that's really brave and powerful what you're doing. And it's really awesome. Just to take it back a little bit, back to what your life looked like in 1961, when you were just finding the courage to re-enter college life and professional society, what supports were there for you or that you created to help you cope with the blindness that you were now experiencing for the first time? I had many supports in the form of certain people with very big hearts, such as my girlfriend, now my wife of 61 years, who has been by my side and I by her side all these decades. And I had a couple of roommates one was named Jerry Spire, and the other was a guy named Art Garfunkel. And the two of them, plus my girlfriend at the time, were the uh, centerpiece of the effort I was making to be born again. And it wasn't pretty. I bet. I, I was determined to fulfill my promise. That's amazing and wonderful. You did release this summer a young reader edition of your memoir. Yes. Can you share a little bit about why you decided it was important for stories like yours to be accessible to middle and high school students? I don't like the I word, but there are certain times when it can be helpful. And, uh, 
-hmm. knowing the despair I was in once this thing happened, uh, I felt it might be good to alert young people that tragic events can happen, but the outcomes are not necessarily tragic. That's a beautiful sentiment. And, you know, Sandy, I'm wondering as a as a former uh, public school educator and someone who's run programs uh, for adults with disabilities and now working with the Jewish Federation of Southern New Jersey, overseeing our area of impact and special needs, um, I've seen adv advocacy conversations happen on both sides of the table. Um, and I'm just wondering out of curiosity, um, if you've ever been met with any resistance uh, from those with visual disabilities who've maybe embraced their low vision or blindness and would rather see it maybe in their world, uh, efforts to improve their daily living activities or access to employment as opposed to your stance of looking at curing blindness. Give, give me an example. So I've often um, seen individuals with disabilities that perhaps, uh, perhaps embrace the disability that they have and don't look to correct in their mind or society's mind of what that disability may be? Well, I have never heard of a person who had um, visual impairment be interested in the status quo. Mm. So my experience doesn't yield anything any knowledge on that subject. I have heard that there are some deaf people who like to be protected in their world, and so they don't want to hear again. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find that there could be a difference within the, the blind population between those that were born blind versus those that acquired blindness through a disease later in life or disability? Well, it's just experiential. Mm -hmm. I uh, believe that if you're born blind, the climb is much tougher than if you have become blind at a certain point in life. For example, in my case, and I hate to center it around me, but that's the knowledge I have, the first 19 years of my life, were so valuable to me once I had lost my vision that uh, I can't imagine how difficult it would be had I not had those museums and libraries in my mind. And fully appreciate uh, your lived experience there and, and how that is relatable for you. Um, you know, you had mentioned previously uh, the Sanford and Susan Greenberg Center to End Blindness uh, that, that was created in 2021 after your mission to end blindness in 2020. Uh, you spoke about those uh, numerous scientists who have received the Greenberg Prize. 
Uh, and I'm just wondering, with the Sanford and Susan Greenberg Center to End Blindness, which is affiliated with the John Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute, um, have there been any new exciting research that's been coming out recently from them that, that has you inspired? Absolutely. Uh, my disease it was misdiagnosed was glaucoma, which essentially uh, destroys the optic nerve, which is part of the brain. And I started out, uh, this responds to your point about events that happened along this path. In 1988, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Dr. Torsten Weasel, who won the Nobel Prize for mapping the visual cortex. And I asked him if he would please bring together some of the best scientists in the world on optic nerve regeneration, which he agreed to do. And we had a symposium in Washington for all of these people. And after all the research they had done prior to the meeting or meetings, the answer was very discouraging. We cannot regenerate the central nervous system, which is, of course, where the optic nerve lives. And but we can regenerate peripheral nerve systems in your limbs, etc. That to me was a major setback because if you go to an authority like the man who mapped the visual cortex himself and have him tell you, forget it. But of course I could not. And so over the years, I continued to proceed and uh, I uh, met, actually I worked with a man named Elias Zerhouni, who President Bush appointed to be the head of the National Institutes of Health. And I approached him with the idea of helping to figure out how we could take steps to end blindness. And for years, we had meetings, symposia, and it still left me a little discouraged. There was nothing I felt I could grab onto and say, this is something to run with. But it was extremely educational. So that was very helpful. Mm -hmm. So say someone listening to this podcast thinks that there's something at your institute or with the research that's being done that could help them. Is there a way that they could get in touch with the center? Uh, well, it, the center is basically for basic science. It's all geared to basic science. So unfortunately, not for a while, we'll 
we be able to produce results that could help people practically. But we have started uh, research in the first instance on optic nerve regeneration, which I think is the most difficult challenge uh, that the vision sciences deal with. Uh, and we, there is one particular scientist who is um, a giant in that field and recognized as such. And he has been making enormous progress in moving this forward. Mm -hmm. But you see, the idea, the idea I had was that ending blindness was really the first step. Mm -hmm. And of course, I can't go out publicly and make speeches about what happens after end blindness, when blindness ends, because I'd be thrown out of the room. So I tend to talk quietly about it. But as I said on a few occasions, the optic nerve is part of the brain, part of the central nervous system, which also controls Parkinson's disease and muscular sclerosis, Alzheimer's, and many other diseases related the central nervous system. It's my belief that the research we are doing in the field of optic regeneration will set the stage for enormous progress in dealing with these other diseases. You know, Sandy, having a, a father who who lives with multiple sclerosis um, for the past uh, 25 years now um, and is a wheelchair user and can only use one of their arms now, um, I applaud you in looking through research that can, that can really affect the lives of so many people. So thank you. You thank the scientists. Well, I will the thank them through you. <laughs> Pass on your thanks. Please do. Um, Danny, you've been described as an inventor, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, an author, an advocate. Um, and for those that are not perhaps aware of your inventions, I, I'm somewhat blown away by the caliber of, of what you're offering to our world and our population. Um, but for those that don't know, you created this, uh, the perfecting, right, of speech compression uh, back in the in the late 60s. Um, so I'm wondering, you've had so many marks in your personal life and in your career. Um, what are you most proud of professionally? Hmm. Well, if you had included my role as a husband and a father, mm. then I would point to those two things. Every Jewish mother wants to hear their child answer that way. 
I hope my mother does hear it. Um, but I would say, you see, when I was a kid, uh, like millions of other kids, we didn't have much to support us by the way of technology or even books. So that left me becoming a card-carrying dreamer. And so my whole life, has been to look ahead to do something as corny as it sounds to help other people. It's the old Jewish thing of tikkun olam. Very much so. I didn't know that when I was a kid, but that's the way I went. So when I lost my eyesight, the central problem for me was keeping up with all the reading lists because Columbia and Harvard and Oxford didn't say, if you're blind, don't read these. Um, so how do you do that when your peers are reading at two, three, four, five hundred words a minute, and you're stuck with a human reader who reads at 150 words a minute, or a tape recorder that reads at 150 words a minute. I know many people who are in the blind community have said, what about Braille? And I always had a piece of data that stuck in my mind. Uh, Tom Watson at IBM became sort of a mentor. And one day I was in his office and he said, proudly, you know, Sandy, that we here at IBM have the fastest Brailleist in the world. I said, really? How many words can he read a minute in Braille? He said, 90 words. His name was Mike Supa, S-U-P-P-A. And then I uh, perhaps a little too forcefully told him about compressed speech. Mm -hmm. With compressed speech, you can listen at 100, 200, 300, that you have the ability to compete with sighted colleagues far more effectively. And it's not necessarily about competition. It's about getting through the material, the incredible 
invaluable material that we all have been initiated when we went to college, initiated into. So uh, it, it turns out, fortunately, over the years, compressed speech has helped millions of blind people. To me, I'm proud of that. Hurt is this ending blindness. I know that I won't be around to see the end of blindness. But I will tell you that because of our efforts, we will have moved the pebble a little bit, the pebble that exists along the path of the progress of civilization. It's something to be so incredibly proud of. And and maybe to even throw another Jewish coin in there uh, of, you know, from Lador Vador, from generation to generation. So not only are you helping to repair the world, but you're doing it one generation at a time, one after another. So I have to ask with, you know, so much accomplished and still working on such bold goals, what is your hope for the future of the disability rights movement and just human health and functionality in general? First, may I say that uh, I prefer calling those people that have different abilities. And I think the progress that has been made has been enormous since I guess Franklin Roosevelt got involved in creating the March of Dimes. And then it became a part of the civil rights movement in the 60s. And it has continued, and it is as noble a movement as I know. So I am optimistic about, so long as the people continue to be persistent, that there will be increased opportunities to enhance the quality of people with different abilities. That's wonderful. Um, before we wrap up, I feel like we do have to mention that you were recently presented with the Centennial Medal from Harvard's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, which is reserved for alumni whose contributions to knowledge, to their disciplines, to their colleagues and society at large. You know, you've come across as, you know, a very humble man trying to stay away from the egocentric eyes, but how does it feel after such a lifetime collection of works for this cause to be recognized for making such fundamental and lasting impact in your chosen area of effort? It feels wonderful. But... Uh, it's the kind of thing that happens to you once in a lifetime. And 
I was sitting home with Sue one night, and there was a letter, and she opened it up, and it was from the president of Harvard. And she read me the letter, and I said, I think they made a mistake. It should go to Hank Greenberg. And I then began thinking about this. And to be honest with you, I, I haven't really yet been able to digest it. It's Even all these months later, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, you don't know what it's like when you picture yourself in 1962, living in a fourth floor walk-up in Cambridge with barely enough money for necessities and have yet, because of Harvard's Phillips Brooks House, readers to help me through my work. And then suddenly you flash forward to standing at Harvard and delivering a speech thanking the university for doing this. It just doesn't happen. I know that you're going to continue to inspire people, Dr. Greenberg, and I know that this conversation has been inspiring to Rose and I. So I, I thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, you were both extremely kind and gracious, and you actually listened, <laughs> which is quite wonderful. So I thank you. We have no um, we have no reason to be here, but other than have a conversation um, and ensure that our community at large is able to hear voices like yours. Thank you. Well, continue to do the extraordinary work you're doing. It, it it means a lot in the universe. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate that. I know we both do. Uh, before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts or do you think you got them all out of your head into our listeners' ears? Um, you know, <clears throat> I, I guess if you have a few more seconds, I'll tell you what has inspired me during my journey. Um, Albert Einstein said the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is a fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and science. Whoever does not know it can no longer wonder can no longer marvel is as good as dead and his eyes are dim. So that would mean that you would miss the magic of daily living. 
the gargantuan essence, the beauty and the joy that can be uncovered in anything every day, whether you're walking with a loved one or, in my case, when I stand on the banks of the Potomac waiting for something extraordinary to happen, it always does. That's the first half. The second half is this guy, Art Garfunkel, who is known as a great singer. To me, he is a Richtige Mensch. I don't know if you know that phrase. Um, and he changed my life in so many ways. But the first and most provocative, we were freshmen at Columbia. We met then. And shortly after we began our classes, he called me outside and said, Sanford, look at that. patch of grass. And I'm saying to myself, he wants me to look at a patch of grass and take it seriously? And then he gave me a little lecture. How light illuminated the beauty and colors of the complexity of the grass. My life was changed permanently. I never looked at nature thereafter in, in a different way. And it was, and, and frankly, it, it made me look at life totally differently. And this happened two years before I lost my eyesight and he came to help me. Incredible. Nice being with you. Yeah, and Dr. Sanford, I hope um, that just as you were inspired in your youth, I hope with your new young adult uh, memoir piece and with those being able to listen to our podcast today, I, I hope and believe that you'll be inspiring the next generation. And so I want to, again, thank you deeply for joining us today for this call. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Jewish Disability Services. Together, we make an impact podcast. And I want to thank our sponsors, the Jewish Community Foundation and Scrub Daddy, for making this episode possible, and thank them for their commitment to making an impact in the disability community. Until next time, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.